You are listening to the Breakfasters podcast. For the what podcast? The Breakfasters. Oh. What did I say? The Racist Podcast. No, I didn't. The Breakfasters? <laughs> yeah, maybe something like that. Did it, I? It sounded something a bit different. Oh, I think everyone knows what they're bloody listening to anyway. For the week <laughs> July 9 to July 13, uh, this week I told you all about the psychics that I went and visited up in Byron Bay. There you go. Talked about spirits and shit. <laughs> uh, also, I had a chat um, about the when I went to the LA Zoo, and I was just trying to convince everyone that I was an expert, but I'm, but I am not. Uh, also, speaking of experts, uh, we had Steve Ellen, aka Doctor Doolittle, and Catherine Devney in about their book Mental. We caught up with the writer performer Amir Hahel about his show Taha, which is on at the Art Centre. Ricky Lee Erickson came in for Feature Creatures. She was very excited to see the giant spider crab migration in Port Phillip Bay. You're listening to the best bits of the Breakfasters from 3 Triple R. You are tuned to Breakfasters here on Triple R with Jeff, Geraldine and Sarah. Taha is a one-person show on at the Art Centre from tomorrow running until the 14th. The one person behind the show is the writer, performer, Amar Halalahel. He's joining us now. Welcome to Breakfasters. Hello. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for having me. This is a show about the life and work of Taha Muhammad Ali. Who was he? Taha Muhammad Ali. He is a Palestinian poet. Uh, he was born in a village called Safuri in the Galilee in uh, 1931. Uh, so it was during the British mandate on Palestine, and uh, and then in '48, when he was around 17 year old, um, uh, the Israeli Arab War uh, uh, came, and uh, the Palestinian Nakba, which is the Palestinian catastrophe, happened, which is a million of refugees. Uh, flew and fled from their homes, escaping from the war. And they, uh, Taha was one of them with his family, and he went to Lebanon. And, and then they discovered that the war is not just a war, it's, it's uh, just a plan to clean the, the land from the Arabs, the uh, Palestinians. So uh, he lived there for one year with his family, and then they decided to snuck to sneak back and they snuck back and then they discovered that Safuri, the village is destroyed and they can't go back to Safuri and Palestine now is Israel and they have to live if they want to live there so they have to live in Nazareth. So he spent all his life in Nazareth and he owned a souvenir shop which is still exists. Uh, sons, uh, um, they, they still... Uh, working there and uh, in his beginning of 50s he started writing poetry and his poetry is we discovered in the late 90s that his poetry is very very unique and one of the most beautiful, tender uh, deep poetry in the Palestinian poetry scene and we discovered a great poet that we didn't know about before what drew you to to his story, like to, to create Taha, the the piece that you've done? Was it his poetry or was it his story of his life? No, I started with his poetry because I I fell in love with his poetry uh, in the late nineties and always uh, tried to find the way to put his poetry on the stage. I really wanted to put Taha's work always on stage. I I didn't I didn't know how to put a theatre piece from uh, poetry. And uh, 
I tried to put it, but uh, when I discovered the story by um, the book of Adina Hoffman, uh, which is a biography of uh, Taha Muhammad Ali, and then I discovered this is this is a story, not just a story of a man, it's the story of the people. And this is very similar to my grandfather's story. So I felt like this is the thing that I'm going to do from Taha's work. What, what was it that was so unique about his poetry when you say that it was unique? Listen, until that time, until the late uh, 80s, uh, the Palestinian poetry scene, it was about, like, talking about the uh, collective pain and loss and the political point of view of how we Palestinians seeing Al-Nakba and what happened to the Palestinian people. And Taha came and took, and he talked about his his personal pain, his small, tiny things of that he lost, his love, his shop, his his friends, his, like, things that we didn't allow ourselves to talk about because we have a collective issue to solve before. But he came and said, listen, the most important loss is your personal loss, your Mm -hmm. personal things that you, that your personal story that you... That you that you lost uh, uh, during the war. It's not about land, and it's not just about land. It's not just about uh, a people issue. It's about really personal loss. Like every every Palestinian or every refugee or every any any person in the world, like during the war, you lose your personal life, which is the most important thing that you lose during the wars. Before the borders and lines and land, it's just, this is the most important thing. This is what was unique and new about uh, Taha's poetry uh, when he uh, started writing in mid-80s, which is was really very new voice of the poetry. Mm. So many people listening poetry is often something that they do at school they might not even like it very much it's just sort of not necessarily central to australian culture what how important is poetry to palestinian culture is it something that lots of people read yeah poetry 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 in the arabic uh, uh, culture it's it's our only original art which is form of art. Well, like we didn't adapt poetry from any other culture because theater is new, music is coming. It came from uh, China and and Turkey and and uh, uh, writing in a way like novels and uh, drama and things. So we didn't like the only the only uh, original art that we have that we know in our bodies. It's poetry. So we still it's a heritage of around like four thousand years. And it's still uh, it's uh, it exists really really massive in the Arabic society. Still, poetry is something part of us. We express ourselves with poetry, and we have lot of kinds of writing poetry. And we have a new wave now, and we have like like uh, uh, um, many of kinds of poetry. So, poetry is something. It's it's part of us. So uh, that's why it's not something that we learn at school and we hate and we don't <laughs> <laughs> connect to, which is, you know, it's, it's something that you, you, you listen to when, since you, you are a child and you, you are involved in scenes of poetry and poetry is something, something really very, very popular and it's something very in the people and in the community. So that's why 
when we talk about a poet, it's very important back in Palestine because poetry, it's, it's ours. It's something very important for us. I've read another interview with you mm. where you've, you've said that th- though your grandfather's story was quite similar to, to, to Ha's story, your grandfather never really spoke to what ha- about what happened to him during the Nakba. Is that common that people didn't want to actually talk about yeah, their, I think their pain in those events? I think it's kind of a post-trauma. And people like people passing really hard. It's it's you know it's it's war. It's and you 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 are being forced to leave your 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 house and your life and and you come back and you can't go to your uh, to your original place and you have to stick to the rules of the new state to live next to your to your village. And then you you prefer that just to be silent. So most of the people they are really silent. Like the the first generation of the Nakba, not a lot of people they could talk about it. So my grandfather he he never talked a word about Al Nakba, and and I I had to go and read and meet people and learn about my. Uh, Nakba, my grandfather's Nakba, from others and from books and from uh, you know outside of the of the house doors. So because m- I think most of the people they didn't speak about it at homes because they wanted to cover it because they felt smaller than you know than than the world and than what happened to them and they didn't want the same thing to happen again. So they kept it quiet just to live. Uh, in their homeland, and that's it. This is, I think, this is now the new generation is more open, and we talk about it, and we we open it, and we open the files because you know we didn't pass it really. Mm-hmm. So I I think that's that's a post trauma first generation mm-hmm. thing. Okay, the show is called Taha. It's on at the Arts Centre. As I said, opening tomorrow, running until the 14th. You're also doing a special performance where you're going to be doing a and a Is that right? A question yeah. and answer session. That's on... Hang on, I've got that. That's on... Um, I can't help you. I can't remember. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's on the 11th of July, so that would be Wednesday night. Yeah. Uh, the show is called, as I said, Taha. We've been talking to the person before, Amar Hellahel. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you for having me. You're Thank in, you. You're in Flora. This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. You are tuned to Breakfasters. Uh, so during your holidays, you saw not one, but a, I don't know how many tarot card readers. Two. <laughs> two. two. It was meant there to be go. five. But oh. <laughs> <laughs> got through two and I was like, ah, oh, it'll be right. Uh, I, I heard it once. I've heard it. Um, <laughs> Uh, before we get to that, though, I just want to. Uh, someone sent in a text asking Geraldine, "Did you notice the competitive hostility between Disney and Looney Tunes mascots at Magic Mountain?" Now, this is in at Six Flags when I went. Isn't he, I don't think there's any Disney characters at Magic Mountain. At be Magic Mountain, probably illegal. Wouldn't it? What's the theme of Magic? Looney Tunes. They've okay, got. Yeah. Um, they've certainly got heaps of, um, and also um, like Justice League. So you've got Wonder Woman and uh-huh. um, Batman and the. And the Flash. Maybe she means between Looks. those those characters and Looney Tunes, or just all against all. Maybe, or maybe in comparison. Anyway, I uh, no, not really. But I was much more inclined to want it. I never got excited about the characters at Magic Mountain. Maybe it's because the first theme park that I went to, uh. and I was just like, oh, I'm, you know, oh, there's 
the Tassie Devil, but I, it's not something that I wanted to um, line up to do. And also, so there was uh, at one stage there was um, su- super is it super woman or super girl? I hope it's super anyway. Super girl, super lady, super lady, <laughs> super woman. What is it? Super girl, S- super girl. It is oh, it super girl. It would be, wouldn't Federer. it? What is wrong with us? It's a little callback. Anyway, and Wonder Woman would, uh, they were standing there getting photos and they were very tall and um, serious. Do they do stuff? Like, do they act out the characters? Or oh, they just can see their faces. They're not inside a suit. No, not inside a suit. Just, oh. you know. You know, women dressed up as Wonder Woman or Super do super, Woman. Do Superman and Superwoman do they have? Are they muscular? Uh, I didn't see Superman. Oh. Yeah, he wasn't around. But the, the two women, you know, the Super Women <laughs> and Wonder Woman, right? Yeah. They were both standing there getting, but they were just very, very tough and very serious. So yeah, yeah they don't do anything. You just come up and get a photo. And, and do they talk? Do that, Supergirl. Um, Supergirl. Bloody would be, wouldn't it? Bloody Superman. And then, oh, no, you can just be Supergirl. Anyway, good on. if she's 12 years old, that's terrific. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> maybe she was. Yeah, maybe. Anyway, so. But are, you allowed so to, are you allowed to talk to them and ask them stuff or do they just sit there silently? No, they just stand there. I don't know. I didn't like I'm sure they would have said stuff to the kids like, oh, save the day. Was there one? Don't do drugs, yeah, kids. Yeah, don't do drugs. Was there one particular good like most popular Looney Tune or anything? Was there one that everyone was lining up for? I think they were lining up for all of them. Like, oh, and they okay. only come up at various different times. So, you know, it's the same with all the characters. They're not there, out there all the time. Because you know how when you're at footy training, like when you're a kid you go to footy training to see, say, Tigers train and there's always the players that everyone wanted the autographs off, like Richo when I was oh. younger. And then there was the kind of B-grade players and I always felt sorry for them because they were the ones that would... Oh, yeah. They probably were happy they didn't have to yeah. sign autographs, but, you know. It's like us when we go out. Yeah. And, uh, Everyone wants your autograph. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so silly. Anyway, in my, it's so funny that in my research I've, I've jumped online and some guy's posted, and it must be a blog post, of um, his kids with all the characters at Magic Mountain and there's one of his daughters that he looks has the same unimpressed pose <laughs> face in every photo and it's very funny. Anyway, tell us about your um, psychic readings. Oh, okay, readings. I thought I was going to keep talking about these things. Uh, oh, yeah, so I went and saw two tarot readers. One of whom I've told you said that Andrew should be spending some more time around dogs. And that's not, that's not the only reason we got Ralph, but, geez, that worked out, didn't it? Yeah. That, how did that come up, though? It seems a strange Just thing it, for a psychic. They to... get so often they're what channeling. <laughs> well, what, this is the, what are you? Well, I want, I'd go to a psychic to tell me the future, not that I that should spend more time with That's dogs. What's well, the future? Because she told you, isn't it? Well, there's the future because she said that person should be. She said Andrew should be around dogs. It'd be good for him. Like he needs dogs around him. Why doesn't he have them? Because oh. they channel mm. spirits and shit. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> the first one I saw. They channel spirits and shit. <laughs> That's what they have on their <laughs> cards that they give out. I channel spirits and shit. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, so the first tarot reader that we went and saw, she was kind of the, you know, wham, bam, you do, like you, pay, you kind of pay a bit more because she's in a proper place where they off, also offer the massage and things oh, like that, yes, as yes, I yes, said, yes. yeah. yeah. Uh, so she was just a 15-minute reading and um, she was very good. The first thing that she said was, she goes, you're very beautiful. You're very beautiful like your mother. You've got a beautiful personality like your mother. I said, oh, thanks. That's really nice. And she goes, you can tell your mum that. And I said, oh, 
mum's passed away. And she went, oh, oh, yeah, that's where that message is coming from. And I was, oh, this really, I was like, oh, I was like, nice oh, recovery. I was like, this is a bad start. <laughs> yeah. She goes, oh, no, that's why I'm being told to say that. You know, it was, but it was this. I was like, oh, this is not oh, a good start. No, I know. The, not at the beginning. First 30 seconds in, I nearly went, give me my money yeah. back, I'm walking out. But I didn't. Is I she chucking around. down the cards as she's talking? So there's cards, you pull out the cards. Right. And you and she then she turns them over, but this she starts kind of just listening to the spirits and then also pulling out cards. And did you pull over any of the ones and look at the thing? Oh, that's the yeah, death. death's head or yeah. The... yeah, well, because it, it's all hanging man and death. They're really <laughs> intense, but death just means like total transformation, and hanging man means I don't know. You can't spell. Be hanging. <laughs> Well, I guess exactly. they're going to say that, they're not going to say, well, the death card, that means yeah, death. So the hanging card, R-I-B. that means hanging. Uh, so, no, that one, but she ended up being pretty cool. Like, uh, some of the things that she said were quite spot on. So she said that uh, Andrew and I were going to look for a place and, and, and have a place down past, this is in Byron Bay, Maria. she has no idea about the Victorian coastline as such, mm. but she said you guys spend a lot of time down past Torquay and I can see you purchasing a property or settling down there at some stage. Ooh. Ooh. That's fairly good because if she'd said any other peninsula, I'd say that is wrong. Mm. Um, she also said, my sister got raised a lot. My One of my sisters, she said... Uh, <laughs> Does your sister know about this Yeah, yet? yeah. yeah. I, I messaged her afterwards, thankfully. Otherwise, I probably wouldn't talk about it. But uh, <laughs> the tarot reader said, oh, you've got a sister. I've heard I've got two. She goes, there's two. One of them's got lighter hair. I can't remember who's got light hair at the moment. And I said, oh, I don't know. And she goes, oh, the one that's bossy and has three children and the eldest is a boy. I went, yeah, Jacinta. Oh. Shout out to Jacinta if she's listening. <laughs> uh, and so that, I thought that was pretty good, wasn't I it? Do you yeah. like the spirit sledging your siblings. I know, bullet. <laughs> For her to say bossy, I don't know. I, I told. Told Jacinta that I said, just to let you know, the spirits described you as bossy, uh, which I thought was fairly accurate. But she said that the eldest child, um, he that he is going to be a, a, an extreme genius in a field like computing or inventing robots, and he's very important. Oh wow! Yeah, and is there some? Well, he's three, so I don't know. Oh, okay. Yeah, he hasn't started programming uh, yet. No, not yet. But uh, So that was kind of some exciting news. But the rest of it was fairly kind of things like Andrew should be around dogs. Um, it's usually how quickly you forget stuff when you go oh, yeah. to see a, a psyche. And, like, most of the time you go in and you just feel really good. It's just nice to have someone there. Talk that, about talk you. To, yeah. yeah. And, and it's they're very loving. Yeah. Yeah. How are you? Just down. It's all relaxing. They've got the candles burning and whatnot. It's yeah. nice. This one was slurping on a on a Coke Zero and tapping on the computer. But anyway, <laughs> really, both, both, both <laughs> of which would have been designed to Mate, send you, you imagine? Friend. I was like, is this the spirits trying to tell me to deal with my <laughs> listening problems? I <laughs> say. Okay, so- when you went to the second one, were you tempted to, when she said something to say, but well, actually the first one told me. No, because the, sec- the second one was a cha- like a channeler only, so she just channeled dead people. Right. <laughs> so I don't know how to talk about it, but the, the, straight away she picked up on a spirit that was there and like was able to say, oh, this is someone that's passed of a certain type of cancer or whatever. And um, that the, the second one was more therapeutic. It was more like a 45-minute counselling session. Yes, that's what you love. Yeah. I went to one once um, and it was at a, a psychic expo. So they have just everyone, the big circle in a hall, everyone has their own table and they all sit around and you can just walk around and pick which one you want to go up to. Oh. Um, so how did you pick one? 
I just felt it. You do. You feel the vibe. Just feel it, the vibe. The second one, there was two at the market, one to the right and one to the left, and Jack and I, my mate, went both the mm. one to the left. Because I, I would do a lap of the place and think, mm, and also this one was available. <laughs> so... <laughs> Also, twenty bucks. Yeah, not forty. <laughs> but this one, the one that I saw, she was uh, she was great because she would draw pictures as well. Oh, cool. As she was, yeah, were, were writing they the down notes, drawing through her hand or not? No, no, no. She just she was just good at drawing. She uh-huh. would draw the spirits that she saw. So she channeled my um, my grandmother, and she goes, this, "This is your guardian. She's looking after you." And then she drew. Uh, a picture of my of my grandmother. Really? Yeah. And yeah. did it look much like her? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Oh. It was amazing, yeah. And said stuff about her and it was just like, oh, yeah, that's all absolutely true. That's legit. Um, and But as soon as I sat down, she said, oh, you've got the gift, don't oh, you? Oh, that's what they all say. I got that twice yeah. as well. You've got the gift. Well, both we, of the bio ones said you had the gift. Yeah, both yeah. of them. But we do. Told you we had the gift. Yeah, we do yeah. have the gift. Oh, okay. I've told we you this before. Yeah. She said, though, you could do something like this if you wanted. But you, Mine said that too. But you'd be too annoyed by the people that I have to deal with. Uh, and that's right. Uh, Wouldn't I get annoyed by yeah, people absolutely. coming in? To be fair. I get annoyed by get annoyed everyone. Quite lots. Yeah. 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 And so, yeah, mine said, because I said to her, well, so what, what do I have to do to, she goes, just get a deck of tarot cards and learn how to, how to use them and then you just buy yourself a little card table, put a tablecloth on it and away you go. That's what she said. Yeah. She just come to the 20 bucks. Yeah, come to the sex box. 20 bar. bucks, spirits and shit. <laughs> just book a table. This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. You are tuned to Breakfasters with Sarah, Jeff and Geraldine. Uh, we re- recently went on, on holidays. Sure we did. All had a lovely time. I went to LA, um, as most of you know, and um, did did all of the theme parks, um, essentially, except there was one day where I didn't go to a theme park. Oh. oh. Yeah. It was, did uh, you sleep? Yeah. Well, there was the day that I got there, uh, no theme parks that day. That was just about trying to stay up. That's when I went to the tar pits. How exciting. <laughs> uh, and then... <laughs> And then there was uh, like a Monday where I thought I'll leave that day free just to do – my plan was to go to the Griffith Observatory. Mm-hmm. Oh. Um, apparently you get a good view of the Hollywood sign there and it's got a planetarium. Fun, right? I was going to do that uh, except it was closed. So oh. I had to change my plans. Um, and I ended up going to the LA Zoo. Both okay. Go. Good idea. Yeah, big fan of the zoo. Mm. Love it. Mm. Right. I thought I'll go check out the LA Zoo. Here's the thing: a lot of zoos are the same, all the same around the world. Really. Yeah. I find that surprising. Of all the things that you wanted to do, was to go to a zoo because it's the same. Well, or? yeah, because it's probably the most like a thing here of anything in LA. Right. Does LA Zoo have a good reputation? Is one of those? You know, yeah, some countries yeah. you go to, they say, "Oh, this is the best zoo in the world." Yeah, yeah, no, they they're good. They're all about conservation and and stuff. They're, you know, similar ideals as this is why it's the same as the Melbourne oh, right. Zoo. Yeah, you know, similar. You know, it's about conserving the animals and making them happy. I guess there's only so many animals too. Uh, mm. Yeah, well, and the other thing is, there's different animals there, so that was exciting. What's the most different animal that was exciting to see? Uh, I got to see some. Um, oh, I suppose there's tapirs there. Tapirs um, are good though. 
there's lots of them. That was very exciting. There was some hippos. That was exciting. Um, condors, like big condors. That's different. Yeah, yeah big big birds. Do of we prey. not have condors here? Apparently not. Not okay. in the Melbourne Zoo. No. Fair enough. Maybe it, maybe at Hillsville. Anyway, but they've also got the um, Australian section of the zoo. Oh, you went there. I went there, right? Mm. And I know. See, this is when it gets silly. <laughs> this is when it's like, what are you doing? I, I, that is what I'm thinking right now. Yeah. So much to see in LA and you went to see, to see a kangaroo. Yeah, because for some reason I got it in my head that I just wanted to like walk around. You know when you're a tourist and you want people to know that you're a tourist? Oh, oh yeah. I know exactly what you mean. Yes. Oh, I didn't know that was a thing. I just thought... Yeah. Everyone feels that. Yeah, your accent gets, like, broader, doesn't yeah. it? Oh, mate. And you say, mate. Yeah, mate. No worries, mate. So Aussie, right. And I just – so I just wanted people to know that I wasn't from from here. It makes you me thought, feel a lot better that, that, that you guys do that as yeah. well. And you thought that standing around kangaroos would help us With a hat and corks hanging from it. Mate, yeah, not far <laughs> – you're not far from the truth here, right? All I wanted to do was be hanging around the Australian exhibit. They had they had an echidna, they had some um, wombats, uh, and they had kangaroos. But I was hanging out near the kangaroos, and all I wanted to do was like just stand next to someone, and they'd be looking at them, going, "Oh!" And then they'd say, "Oh, look at them! How exciting! They kangaroos there!" And I'd go, "Whoa! Yeah, they're pretty great." Got them in my backyard at home, though, don't I? Got some kangaroos in my backyard. <laughs> The opportunity never <laughs> arose for me to say that. Really? But gosh, I lingered around. <laughs> was there anyone else there? Yeah, yeah, there was, but I just didn't. It, it wasn't. It, it didn't. Um, I mean, it would have been weird anyway. But it just, <laughs> just there just wasn't weird. a specific point where anyone you could was. Go. Yeah, anyone was engaging at me. You know, I needed someone to engage with me. Yes. Did you? Or you could have just been like Bindi Irwin. Yeah. <laughs> I'm I'm not her, <laughs> but close <laughs> enough. Unless you're wearing some. Costume, and yeah. it's hard to know what that costume would be. It would be a from, hat with corks. Well, apart from that, unless you're wearing a hat with corks, how was how were people going to know and that what you were Australian? You? Unless you were like talking at the top of your lungs the yeah. entire time. Well, you know, but sometimes weird. sometimes you're at the zoo and you're both looking um, at it, and we go, "Oh, that's pretty cool." Oh, yeah. Oh, what, look at that. That's interesting. How many people? Were, how far away were people from you? Could you have gone, crikey? G'day, Cobber. Yeah. Yes, yeah, I could have done that. Yes, you're right. You're right. I absolutely could have done that. But I just kind of, you know, oh, there was a, there was a platypus. Uh, no, no, no. Sorry, it was the the wombat. So we walked through there, and I kind of, um, I said, oh, is this is this where the wombats are? Uh, and they <laughs> sounded a bit more British when you yeah, did that. <laughs> they didn't they didn't pick up on it, right? They didn't. Maybe they thought I was. But someone once when, when I was over there, they said. I can't tell the difference between all the colonised countries, like South Ooh. Africa. Yeah, Americans and, can't. Yeah. Yeah. I'm like, oh, okay. Generalising yeah. about Americans. But yes. every time I've yeah. travelled there, I thought I was English. Or uh, Austrian. Anyway. Austrian. <coughs> Austrian. Yeah, oh, when you say lot. you're Australian. Yeah. Oh, Austrian. yeah, yeah, right. You look Austrian, though. Yeah. Don't you reckon? thing going on. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> there was uh, someone from the zoo that was talking about echidnas. And so she was standing there, you know, giving talks and st- well, kind of just more like a volunteer. <clears throat> it, it seemed like that she was like, you know, and she'd been chatting to these American people about echidnas, and um, I was kind of in the background waiting for my moment to go. <laughs> oh, yeah, got them in my backyard, um, and 
And they kind of, the, the American people left and then she said to me, she goes, oh, do you know much about echidnas? are like, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I know a thing or two. She goes, oh, you're Australian. I go, yeah. And, and then she proceeded to go through all these facts about echidnas that I had no idea about. <laughs> <laughs> did, you, did you try and offer a fact back? No, I just kind of went, but it was, she was great because she just go, <clears throat> so you know when, um, you know, when the egg is born, like it's um, <clears throat> how long after mating, you know, it's only 22 days after mating that the, um, that the egg is born. I'm, I'm sorry, like, they have yes. an egg? Yeah. yeah. I did not know that. Yeah. That's um, only, yeah, egg straight into the... Um, the Sounds house. like you need to spend a bit more time around the Australia. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, an egg straight into the pouch. Oh, yeah, and then how weird. Yeah, but it's only the um, the echidna and the platypus. That's the that, whole. The platypus do it too. Yeah, the, they're they the only b- mammals that lay eggs. What you need to catch up, don't you? You totally need to go there. I feel bad yeah. for mocking you That's for going you, to the Australian. Clearly, Barbara every zoo. time you go to the zoo, you just walk past the Australian. Yeah, I do know all that. I do. But didn't don't you remember the um? What do, what do you call it? Marsupials. No, the. Um, metronome, no. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah. Monotremes. <laughs> yes, thank ah, you. Not, yeah, monotremes. I did not know this. So the mammals that lay eggs. And so they, there you go. So 22, and she goes, so she'd be like, oh, it's, it's only 22 days after mating that, um, and then, and you, and you, of course you know how long the gestation period is. <laughs> I like that, ten of course. 10 days, that's correct. Yes, 10, ten days. days. Yeah. That is a quick baby. Mm-hmm. And also, she goes, and also, you know, um, that the echidna doesn't have where, where they get their milk from. They just, you know, there's no nipples, so they just it, it just comes out of their skin like sweat. That is disgusting. That's the way it is. <laughs> so when she was saying this, when she was like, of course you know, God, was it as passive-aggressive as it sounds? <laughs> <laughs> it does sound passive-aggressive, doesn't it? Uh, yeah, no, less so, but still a touch of it there. Like she, I think she was... She knew that, um, and then she proceeded to tell me how much time she'd spent in Australia oh. and where she had been. And oh. it's like, oh, you've, yeah, you really know what you did. You, <laughs> what did you feel like you wanted to say, well, do you know the Melbourne comedy scene? Yeah. For, yeah. For, for instance, have you been to Aubrey? Yeah. Uh... yeah, she probably had. You know. Anyway, it was fun. You are listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, Three Triple R, one hundred two point seven in Melbourne. Feature creatures here on Breakfast as it's time to talk to Ricky Lee Erickson from the Melbourne Museum. How are you going? Good, how are you? Good, thank you. What animal are we talking about today? Today we're talking about the giant spider crab. Um, I already like the sound of it. Yeah, they're pretty great. Um, A few weeks ago I was lucky enough to go scuba diving with some colleagues at the museum and we went to see the giant spider crab migration that occurs every year in Port Phillip Bay. It's an absolutely incredible event. Um, So I thought may as well tell you about that because I don't think many people in Melbourne know know that this happens. How giant is it? Giant is not that big. It's giant relative to a regular crab. Oh, okay. So <laughs> we're all giant in that sense. Exactly. <laughs> so it's about the the main part of the body. The carapace is about sixteen centimeters wide, and then it's pretty big. So yeah, that's quite big already. But with the Ooh. legs, about forty centimeters. So quite, it's quite big. I they are. Jeff, he looks horrified. They, look, <laughs> they, they do, do look very spidery. Yes, look, yeah. I've been posting a lot of Instagram photos and some of my friends aren't too happy about it. But, um, <laughs> they're, yeah, so they're quite big. Um, they're native to Australia. Uh, they live 
presumably around in and out of Port Phillip Bay. Um, and every year in about June, they have this mass congregation of spider crabs. We're talking thousands and thousands of crabs spanning the course of hundreds of metres. It's when you're down there, it's basically crabs as far as the eye can see and they actually form these big crab sort of mounts of metres high of just piles and piles of crabs crawling all over each other. Ugh. So there's a few... It's very extraordinary looking. Like it's something out of yeah. an Indiana Jones if it was in a cave. Yes, it's, yeah. it's definitely something everyone should go home and Google. Because yeah. <laughs> uh, it's... And there's footage as well. It's just absolutely incredible. Um, so they, they basically get together and, and do this big mass molting. So crabs, uh, in order to grow, they need to shed their exoskeleton. Um, and when they do that, they're at the most vulnerable. So that's when they're really soft and fleshy and that's really easy time for predators to eat them. So what they do is they take this big safety numbers approach. And that's, oh. I think... That's, they think that's why they all come together like this because you don't really see them mating. Some of them you do see, probably just out of circumstance, but it's not really a, a mass mating event like you would see in other migrations. It's They think it's this safety numbers approach because, as I said, they are really vulnerable when just after they've molted and it does take about an hour for them to molt. So it's mm. quite a long period of time really and they can't really defend themselves or do anything. Well, why in that don't period. all the fish just come around and, and scoop them all up while they're all together. Sometimes they do. <laughs> they <Aww>. do. <laughs> but I guess if you're surrounded by thousands of crabs, it's probably less likely that you're going to be eaten by something, where, whereas if you're by yourself off. And and the other thing is is that when so one, once a crab still has its old exoskeleton on, they put little animals, bits of seaweed, things grow on it, so it's really well camouflaged. And when I was out there, you most of the crabs hadn't molted yet, so there was still kind of that dirty grey sediment colour. But once they have molted, they're this beautiful, vibrant red-orange colour. And it's just like you just see them straight away. It's so obvious. So it's very, very obvious. But they are beautiful once they have molted. Um, But obviously, again, that's another risk for them. But how long does it take them for 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 it to get hard again? Well, I guess that's a process that would take, you know... A few months, I, I suppose. I'm not sure exactly. So, do they just stay in that big group the whole time? Or? Yeah, for for a couple of weeks, and then what happens afterwards? We don't really know. We don't actually know <laughs> where they all come from and where they, they all go. go. Oh, such a mystery. Wow. It's, it's yeah, it's super weird because you get these thousands of crabs, and then they all just disappear. And and some people think they go out and just disperse throughout the bay um, because they do all congregate in the shallow waters so near the near the shoreline, which mm. is why lots of divers, lots of people get to see them. Um, I went to Blair Gary, so if anyone is interested, you you can go. You can even see them from the pier. You don't even need to get out of the water. Oh, wow. Um, wow. Are they but still there at the moment? No. So they've, they've gone now. It's usually, you know, a period of one to two weeks. There's a Facebook group called Spider Crabs Melbourne or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> and they'll give you updates on when they're, <laughs> on when they're congregating. Um, but, yeah, so th- some people think they go out, um, out, out of the heads. These animals can't be found as deep as 800 metres. So they oh. might go outside of the bay and go into those deeper areas of the water as well. But some researchers would like to track them, put little trackers on them, but hasn't been done yet. So we don't know for sure where they're going. Um, all we know is that they do come together in the shallow waters in the southern end of the bay for a week of the year. And when I was out there as well, I saw some of the predators. So I saw a beautiful big smooth stingray, which is about one and a half metres wide, absolutely incredible. And it was just swooping over the piles of crabs and just picking up um, crabs. But, again, I reckon... How does a stingray pick up a crab? Well, a mouth, because the mouth's at the bottom. Oh, of course. I don't actually... 
think I saw, I've witnessed one feeding, but it might be hanging around until the molting occurs because the crabs do almost molt simultaneously. So once they're wow. done, then that would feast. be... Exactly. Yeah. Also saw a cuttlefish. I think it was a giant Australian cuttlefish. Again, giant does not mean it's very big. It's probably, <laughs> again, only about 30 centimetres long. Um, and that one was just swimming around as well. Saw lots and lots of fish. Um, tons of birds hovering out of the water because uh-huh. birds will also dive down and feed on them. So it's a massively important part of the ecosystem in Port Phillip Bay. It's a really big food food source for the other animals as well. Um, so, yeah, it's a really, really important um, event that occurs and it's really cool because you can go out 20, 50 metres and just see it for yourself. Oh, it's incredible. So it's cool. it's just right there. And do they, humans eat these crabs? Yeah. No, not, not these ones. Um, I think they oh. probably are edible but they're not commercially... Um, fish or anything like that. Yeah. I was going to ask, <laughs> are there any um, opportunistic fishermen out there pop- popping their nets in? But I guess if they're not good for eating, then... No, and I think they're because they're a native species, there are restrictions on them okay. um, as well. So, I, And what do they eat? So crabs themselves are scavengers. So you can they pretty much eat whatever they can get, mainly stuff that's already dead. But they also can eat, you know, seaweed, algae, they'll graze on other things. But, yeah, they're not hunters, so... They'll just eat what they what they what can they get. come across. Exactly, yeah. And do they always come to the same place to, to, to do this? Yeah, approximately. They come up to the shallow waters, um, closer to the shore, and they think they do that as well so they can all find each other but also to escape the deeper channels in in the uh, deeper waters in Port Phillip Bay and outside of the heads. And in Australia, does it, ha- does it happen anywhere else in Australia? Uh, no, not to this scale, and actually it's one of the biggest crab migrations in the world. So. Oh. It's really, really cool and we're really lucky to have it. Um, lots of people think, you know, Australia, marine life, Great, you know, um, Great Barrier Reef, that's where it's at. But actually the Great Southern Reef or the Great Southern, Southern Ocean is absolutely incredible and we've got tonnes and tonnes of diversity, really, really important ecosystems and, actu- and beautiful things to see out there. In Port Phillip Bay, you think, oh, it's a bay with a major city on it. There's nothing out there. But, you know, I've been diving out there. There's beautiful sponge gardens, um, beautiful big rays, little colourful reef looking like fish that they're all these temperate species. And it's absolutely incredible that this wildlife, this ecosystem can survive and flourish almost in, in these environments. And, and yeah, so it's, it's, I do encourage people to get out there and explore Port Phillip Bay. And you said that people don't know where they go. Do you ever see the giant spider crabs at any other times of the year, like just by one by themselves? Or Yeah, you, you would. They're, they're benthic animals, so um, you don't see them as often because they're probably well camouflaged. Um, they're one-off, so you might not see them. And they're probably deeper than what we can... You don't see that many of them because they're probably reaching areas maybe below 30 metres, which is, you know, the classic, you know, depth that most divers can get to. So you're probably not actually going to see them that often. Um, but they, yeah, they, there's apparently thousands of them in the bay um, just waiting to come up. So, yeah, it's it's really, really cool. Creeping and around with their giant spidery legs. The, the other weird thing is that, that I did witness is that crab crabs eating other crabs. Oh, it's gonna, oh, Crab thought... cannibalism does happen. I guess they're the ultimate scavenger. That's so that. Yeah. yeah. Jeez. It's oh, brutal out there. Yeah. Fascinating. Ricky Lee Erickson, thank you so much for joining us. You are listening to a podcast from Australia's best known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. 
Yes, that's right. Triple R is We Are. This show is Breakfasters with Jeff Geraldine and Sarah. Mental, everything you never knew you needed to know about mental health. It's a new book out through Black Ink. It's written by comedian and writer Catherine Devney and Professor Steve Ellen, who you might know as Triple R's own Dr. Doodle from Radiotherapy on Sunday mornings. Welcome both of you to Breakfasters. Thank you. G'day. <laughs> this is a guide to mental health that's shaped both by best available psychiatry but also by your own experiences. So how did this book come about? Well, we started it, it really came about because, funnily enough, through depression, I was depressed back in 2012, and part of it I started sort of journaling, and then I enrolled in one of Dev's courses, Gunner's Writing Masterclass, met Dev, and then Dev really encouraged me to start writing about depression, and then I'd been talking about this book for a long time, and Dev pushed me to write it, and then it was sort of like a, hey, presto, hey, why don't we do it together? And who did you have in mind as the audience for it. You know, when book projects come together, you usually have some sort of sense of who is the person who needs to read this book. Was there a particular sort of person in mind? I'm not sure about Steve, but for me, it was the person who is not feeling that comfortable talking to their family and friends and not feeling that comfortable talking to professionals. It was very much... We really love pubs and a lot of the conversations about <laughs> mental... <laughs> exactly. A lot of the conversations about mental health that we were having, despite the fact that, you know, Steve's a clinician and a psychiatrist, were in places like in pubs, in cafes in the tea room. So it was really a conversation with... I'm the kind of, you know, amateur psychologist, the enthusiastic layman, and Steve is the kind of layback, accessible, professional and academic. So it was the conversation in the pub that we could have with people as fast as we could to give them hope, get some practical information and also um, a bit of research and cultural background. And, you know, the other thing that always strikes me is when someone comes along to the office to see me, you know, with some sort of disorder, pretty much the first, like, half an hour at least is pretty much the same every time once you figure out what's going on and you start describing. And so it was sort of... Every chapter for me sort of started with that sense of what happens when I'm in the clinic, in the room, and, a pa- and you know, a patient says, I've got depression, what do I need to know? And you start talking. So it was sort of trying to put that down. Yeah, sorry, Catherine, you've all... You, you seem quite happy to talk about your um, experience with, with mental illness. Mm. Seems to... And I have the same thing. I'm quite happy and open to talk about mm. it. I guess, is this book uh, aiming to to get people to talk about their own experiences more? I hope so. It was funny. when we were, Our very first question we were on ABC Breakfast Telly was, do you think the stigma around mental health is lifting? And to me, it was such a kind of a weird question because where I am, it's just a normal part of conversation. Like, I've got three kids and there's a lot of, you know, you, you know have you had the talk with them about, you know, sex or drugs or whatever? Mm. I just don't live in that world mm. where there are topics that are these topics that you don't talk about. So I, I do think that some people need to be, um, if they can see it, they can be it. And I have to say, a lot of medical professionals that I know, friends, have talked to me about their mental health problems and haven't talked to anyone else because they, when I start talking really freely about, you know, I just said, like most people I manage and and um, suffer mental health because there's two bits of it for me. When I say that and it's just like a normal part of my life and I think they see me as someone who can manage life fairly well with a business and a family and a social life and all the rest of it, I think it emboldens them a bit to say, great, I can talk to this person, they won't think I'm nuts because... 
And so I don't think I thought that along the way, but I would love that to be a byproduct of it. The bottom line is with books, you never know how they'll go or what they'll do. You just kind of do the best you can. You write towards an idea. You know, Steve was talking about being in the clinic and the first stuff that comes out. But as we would start talking, because Steve comes from a more academic point of view, he would want to go down into these kind of rabbit holes of statistics and evidence and references. And I would say, Steve, this is just the start of the conversation. We just have to let it go off however it goes off. But our (laughs) book is the start of the conversation. There's a lot of stuff in the book and we're not going to be able to get through very much of it. But one one question you tackle that I reckon probably comes up a lot for a lot of people is that sort of situation where you've got a friend that you think might need help but you don't know how to talk to them about it. And you've got some steps that people can take in that situation. Maybe you can discuss that a little bit. You're asking me to remember stuff that we've written. It's like a <laughs> test. I feel like I'm back at uni. But that is one of the common. That is probably the commonest question that I get. I'd get at least one phone call a week, uh, and often, and it's the commonest thing at the hospital too that people ask is, um, you know, I'm worried about a friend. What do I do? And the really common, in particular, drug and alcohol problems and suicide. We get that just all the time. I'm worried that my friend might be suicidal, or I'm worried that my friend's on drugs or alcohol. And what do we do? And so I can't remember. I honestly can't remember the steps we did. But it's pretty. It's a standard sort of process. I always take people through Um, and it's basically trying to get help them first figure out what it is in their head that they're worried about because often people are worried about themselves and their own relationship with that person rather than the other person so there's a teasing out process and then I get people to um, basically rehearse in their head what they're going to say and how they're going to say it in a really plain and simple way without trying to overanalyze it so the first steps are usually something like just saying to someone hey you know look I'm really worried about you. You know, stop me if I'm overstepping the mark here, but I'm really worried about you. And these are the things I've noticed and this is why I'm worried. And then you just shut the hell up and let them talk a little bit. And always be aware that they might not be ready, but by knocking on that door, you've basically, you know, you've you've created the opportunity and sometimes they mightn't come back to you for a month, sometimes a year. Other times they'll start talking immediately. The rescue of the Thai boys in the cave, I found profoundly moving and affecting on a whole lot of levels, but it made me think a lot about this book and about mental health. I think that life is just a series of going on adventures and finding ourselves a bit out of our depth and ending up kind of in the dark and we do not knowing how we get out. And it made me really realise how important it is for us all to know that there are times of our life that are all a bit like that. And what we need is someone to sit with us and care for us and keep us calm and wait for the professionals to come in and take us out towards the light so we can take a deep breath. Don't underestimate just showing humanity in those points because, you know, you can take a horse to water and it might be the right time. I totally agree with Steve. Just saying, are you okay? They might say, yeah, I'm fine. But they know that you're a person who they can go back to and say, you know how you asked? I'm actually not and I haven't been for a long time. And people will say, what can I do? My Our first points of call is um, connect with yourself Am I my normal self? If not, then connect with the people who love and care for you and you feel understood by saying, I'm not great, I need to lower expectations, I I need you to know that this is where I'm at at the moment. Then connect with professionals who can help and advise um, different ways of dealing with it. And then, of course, there's connect with the things you love. Connect with your body. So just, you know, feel your body. What does your body need? Sleep, food cuddles, exercise, nature, and also connect with the outside world in the ways that you can. That's kind of how I break it down if I'm 
thinking about myself, my kids, people who come, you know, total randoms as well. In my experience, though, there's quite a chasm between acknowledging and being able to talk about mental illness and people being able to access services. There's often a gap. So I've got had a lot of friends because I've had experience with hospitalising a member of my family before who suffers from bipolar. I've had friends call me and go, a friend is, is you know, appears to be behaving in this way. Someone's saying, take them to a psychiatric. What do I do? Who do I call? What do I do when I get to the psych or what do I say? Do you find that there's still that gap? Like, I don't know how we're going to fill that gap between beginning to understand and talk about mental illness and then actually practically being able to access services. I feel like the general public don't know what to do. I agree. This is one of the things that, you know, working in the area shits me more than yeah. anything. Mm. There's a massive gap. It's not like physical health where everyone's got a pretty rough idea that you can, you know, do, go to your GP, go to a local hospital, go to an emergency department, go to the community nurse. Yeah. In mental health, it's a maze. The system is an absolute maze. Mm. It depends on the area you live in. Big difference between rural and city. Um, we spend a lot of time trying to unpack this in the book. We've got a whole lot of stuff about, you know, ways to go about it. We talk about the pros and cons of, you know, opening the paper and looking for a counsellor. Going to your GP is a great first port of call because not all of them, but, you know, quite a few, high proportion these days know the local services. A lot of them have some sort of shrink, usually a psychologist in their office. All the crisis teams, we talk about how you can pretty much just ring up a hospital and they've pretty much all got what they call a triage or crisis. But um, it drives me nuts because um, it's not the same as physical health. It's mm. basically, it's a bit of a mess. It's not nearly funded adequately. And even though we've made massive ground in the last 20 years and I love Headspace and I love psychology under Medicare and all that stuff, there's still a long way to go. Okay, we're pretty much out of time. You guys have got a launch coming up in the 19th of July. Launch of Mentor the Book. Um, you'll have to contact Black Ink to RSVP. It is at the Bouvier Bar, which is in Lycon Street. Of course it's in a bar. Of course it's in a bar. Do you know why? Because there's no toilets readings and it's down for uh, maintenance at the moment. Oh, so go. 19th, I think it's about 6pm till about 8pm. We would love to see you, but you can get the book anywhere, um, you know, if not ordered in, you can get on Kindle. I think we're Amazon. What is Steve? Steve's doing all of the <laughs> algorithms and metrics. Jeff, Jeff, did you see this? We're number one on Amazon under mental health. That's what made me excited. And dieting. Oh, well, well it? And dieting. Something about nutrition, we're up there. Yeah, excellent. The book is mental. Everything you never knew you needed to know about mental health, it's out through Black Ink. We'll be talking to Catherine Devney and Professor Steve or Dr Doodle. You can hear him on Radio Therapy on Sunday mornings. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.